So think about it for a minute. If you had to rely on secrecy to protect your intellectual property, how would you go about finding a buyer for someone? It would be very difficult because if you revealed any information, you had no protection. Imagine a world in which you invent something important, something that might help many people and make you a lot of money. But in this world, there is no legal protection for that invention, and the day after you come up with the idea, other people can copy it at will while leaving no legal recourse for you. In that world, there is perhaps little incentive to invent things. A patent grants its owner the right to exclude others from making, using, offering for sale, or selling an invention for a specified period of time in return for disclosing the invention to the public. Patents are a foundational piece of intellectual property rights, both in the United States and worldwide, and they are both celebrated and criticized for variously enabling or preventing invention. Join us as we explore patents and how they help shape the world as we know it today. This is Riches in Power, the podcast where we explore the industries and trends that shaped our world with experts renowned in their field of study. I'm your host, Alex Dubay, and I'm glad you're here as we explore topics both large and small, familiar and strange, and near and far. Join me as we learn about the forces that bent the world around them and built the world as we know it today. My name is Alex Dubay, and today we're joined by Naomi Lamoureux, who is the Stanley B. Rezor Professor of Economics and History at Yale University. In her spare time, she's also a senior research scholar at the University of Michigan Law School and a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. She has written and edited many books, including The Great Merger Movement in American Business, 1895 to 1904, and The Battle Over Patents, History and Politics of Innovation. Recently, she's been studying the patent system in the late 19th and 20th centuries in the United States, and that is what we have the privilege of speaking with her about today. If you want to find out more about Naomi and her work, visit Naomi, N-A-O-M-I-L-A-M-O-R-E-A-U-X.squarespace.com. Naomi, thank you so much for joining. Really glad to have you here today. Thank you for inviting me to speak with you. I've been looking forward to this conversation. I have a couple conversations coming up that kind of swirl about the world of patents. So it's, it's going to be really interesting to learn from you. And I guess to start, I always like to just do a foundational question so that myself and our listeners are, are on the same page as us, I suppose. But to start, what is a patent? How, how do you explain that to people who don't know anything about the interesting world of patents? It's exactly what you said it was a moment ago in your introduction. You come up with an idea and you want to make some money from it, but you're worried that someone will steal your ideas. So a patent is a certification or a piece of paper, a grant from the United States government, or if you're in another country, there are other governments that grant patents that says, this is your idea, and you have the right to prevent other people from stealing your idea. It's very, very simple thing. You publish it to the world and, and everybody can kind of see, aha, John Smith invented XYZ thing. Right. Well, not only do you publish it to the world, but the patent office publishes it to the world. So there is a trade-off in the patent system. 
you can have this piece of paper that says that you can prevent other people from stealing your idea, but you have to make that idea public. And that means that after the term of your patent is over, that idea is in the public domain. But it also means that for the duration of your patent, the information about your patent is also in the public domain. And that's information that is useful to other inventors and may stimulate them. Is the thinking that you're given this monopoly on the idea because you came up with it, but the exchange, so to speak, is that you're also telling the world how to benefit from it down the road? Yes, exactly. And is 20 years a fairly standard protection time frame for these patents as they're granted? Well, 20 years is the current standard. And it is. it was picked to, I believe, to conform to international practice. But that, has, that was not historically the term of the patent. So when the patent system was first created in the United States in 1790, the term of a patent was 14 years. Now, there's one important difference. It was 14 years from the date the patent was issued. Today, it's 20 years, but it's 20 years from the date you applied for the patent. So it behooves you to get your application in quickly these days. Well, I mean, you get your application in and the clock starts running, but what happens next is to some extent out of your control because it depends how long it takes the patent office to process your patent. So that could take several years Mm. and the clock is running that whole time, but it's you can't do anything about it. (laughs) So is it a fair assumption that when it changed from 14 to 20 years, it's probably a net benefit to people applying for a a patent. In other words, it doesn't always take six years for that examination process. Well, actually it, it, it didn't change from 14 to 20. It changed from 17 to 20. Ah. So the Congress changed the term of a patent to 17 years in the middle of the 19th century. Okay. And that brings me to an interesting question I've been curious to hear your your learnings on. Is there a big distinction between what you think of as kind of a historically first patent or past patent system and what our modern system looks like? You know, we're somewhat familiar these days with a modern patent system, but is is it wholly dissimilar from what you've seen historically? So the modern patent system was created in the U.S. in 1836. And what really defines a modern patent system is that there is a staff of patent examiners who look at an application and see if it meets the standards to be awarded a patent. So that system was created in the U.S. The U.S. was the first to do that kind of a patent system, an examination system. That was created in the U.S. in 1836, and we've had it ever since. Before that, so for example, in Britain, the British patent system was a registration system. Anybody who paid the necessary fees and jumped through the necessary hoops could get a patent, but it was never examined for novelty or utility or any of the things that patent law specifies. I can imagine that resulted in a lot of arguments. It did, yeah. So there was no prima facie assumption that your patent was valid, so it could be litigated. 
Now, the other thing I would just be careful about, our patent system today, it has changed from our historic patent system, the one that was created in 1836. So in 2011, Congress passed the America Invents Act, and that changed the patent system in a number of important ways. Looking back into prior to the 1830s, was it a much more patchwork system where you had state-by-state guidelines or even before then colony-by-colony guidelines? So before the American Revolution, we were under British law, of course, and there was a British patent system. It was that kind it was a kind of patchwork registration system. There were patents that were granted in the colonies, and they were patents which were someone would come in and apply to the colonial legislature or to the governor for a patent and could be granted a patent. But again, this is more like a, a political favor almost, or like a monopoly grant or something like that, than a modern patent system. So after the revolution, at the Constitutional Convention, there was general sentiment that it was in the interests of this new nation to promote science and technology and the useful arts in general. And so Congress had the power to create a patent system. And it got to work doing that almost immediately. And the first patent system was created in 1790. And that was also an examination system. The framers looked at the British system and and saw there were things that were wrong with it, and they tried to correct it. So they created an examination system, but they created it in a way that was not workable. Basically, if you applied for a patent, you applied to a committee that consisted of the Secretary of State, the Secretary of War, and the Attorney General. And those three men, they were men, would decide on whether your uh, invention met the standards of the law. Were they soon just swamped by applications? Well, they were, yeah. And, and in fact, most of it fell on Jefferson. Who, Jefferson, <laughs> Which makes sense if you know anything about Jefferson. Exactly. He was a technology nerd from the time, right? And so he was the one who had some expertise in this area. And so all the work fell on him. And he said, Stop, I can't I can't handle it. Take this away. <laughs> Fix the law. And so in 1793, the Congress passed a new patent act that was a registration system. So in other words, there was no examination of patents to make sure they conformed to the law. And so there was the kind of chaos that we talked about a moment ago, and inventors wanted the situation changed, and finally they prevailed in 1836. So a little bit of a pendulum, actually, with this this yeah. unique review process going back to the application process, coming back to the review process in the 1830s. Yes. And then the 1830s one stuck because they didn't give it to people like Jefferson, the job. They created professionals. They created a unit. It was in still in the Department of State at that time, but it was a special bureaucracy and they staffed it with professional examiners. Only one to begin with. As he got overloaded, the numbers grew and grew and grew with the, you know, the, the number of patents. Was that office the precursor to the today's U.S. Patent and Trade Office, the, the USPTO? Yeah, that's the same, essentially the same office. 
It had a slightly different name because they didn't deal with trademarks yet. But that was it. And it stayed in business ever since. And this this may be a a broad question or maybe at the risk of asking a, a broad question. I'm always intrigued by these moments where the U.S. did something that was truly innovative on a, an international scale and, and pointing to our, our patent system, the review system, as something that was very innovative on a, a worldwide scale. Why do you think that happened at that time in the U.S.? What do you think it was in the miasma of the time or what have you that it, it occurred for the first time here? Well, probably there are many factors that shape the timing of that act, but the 1830s was a boom period. And patents, or I should say inventive activity, is generally what we call pro-cyclical. It rises in periods of booms and you know declines in periods when the economy is tanking or rises whenever the economy is growing and falls when it's not. So probably there were just a lot of patents and people who were patenting wanted some protection. So I I would guess that's an important reason. This is also the era that we call Jacksonian democracy. So there was this sense that you wanted to make the system more open, accessible, and level the playing field. And in a world where you don't have an examination system, people who have deep pockets are more advantaged. So it may have had something to do with it, but it could just be serendipitous too. You know, a particular congressman decided to take this on, a guy named Ruggles, and it could have an element of serendipity to it. Yeah, total side note, I I talked with a guy named Lewis Hyman at Cornell, and he mentioned that the Fannie Mae, the governmental backing of U.S. mortgages in the, I think it was the 1930s, I want to say, was the first time that it happened internationally. So it's, it's just an interesting phenomenon that, that first that really transforms a market in a, a big way. Straying away from the question of, of whether patents should exist, because I think that's interesting and we'll touch on that later. At its base, what is the legal rationale for a patent in your view? Well, there's the, the one that everyone says, and it's, it's related to what you said in your opening statement, that if an inventor's ideas can be stolen, then inventors, potential inventors won't invest the time and resources needed to be successful inventors because others can just free ride on on their discoveries. So that's the, the standard explanation. And I think that's an important part of what patents do and, and why they're so important to innovation. But I think there's another aspect to patents that gets less attention, but is really very important. And that is that once someone is awarded a patent, they have a tradable asset. That is, the patent can be sold or it can be licensed, leased to to someone who wants to exploit it. And that's really important because inventors may be very good at coming up with technological ideas, but they may be very bad at running companies to exploit them. So you want a system that makes possible a division of labor where inventors specialize in what they do best and then come up with new ideas, come up with new technologies, and then spin off the commercialization and development of those technologies 
to other parties. And, and the patent system makes that happen. So think about it for a minute. If you had to rely on secrecy to protect your intellectual property, how would you go about finding a buyer for someone? It would be very difficult because if you revealed any information, you had no protection. So you would have to develop your own technology in-house, only employing people that you trusted. And that would lead to all kinds of inefficiencies compared to a patent system where you can sell off these rights as needed. That's interesting. Yeah, it's a reflection perhaps of the reality, as you said, that there are two different discrete disciplines. It's invention and it's commercialization. And it's, it's acknowledging that fact in a lot of ways. That second part made me think of uh, Coca-Cola and, and trade secrets. And I've, yes. my understanding is the Coca-Cola recipe is secret. Only a handful of people have access to you know, some little special slip of paper that has that on there. And they've relied on trade secrets from the beginning. They have never published that or tried to copyright it or trademark it or whatever it might be. So patents were often not used in cases of products that had recipes. Because if you got a patent, you had to make the recipe public. And once you did that, you gave everything away. And then, you know, you would only have the property right to that idea for the duration of the patent. But if you can rely on trade secrets, which you can do for things that are difficult to reverse engineer, then you can extend essentially your intellectual property rights forever. (laughs) As long as you can keep it secret. You just have to make sure you you tell people who are really good at keeping secrets. Yeah. Now, you know, I don't know if, I mean, to me, um, it's probably now very easy to reverse engineer flavors. So I I don't know. Coca-Cola relies on its brand name and it, you know, there's a, there's a whole other aspect of its intellectual property that's not really dependent on the recipe anymore. So I think the secret formula may be a little bit, the importance of that may be exaggerated, but but maybe you should ask (laughs) Coca-Cola. Yeah. Yeah. That's really helpful. I've got a much better understanding of how patents exist, why they exist. And jumping forward a bit, I suppose, to when you really started in in grade school or whatnot, or high school, learning about patents, it seems to me to be the industrial revolution, when you really started to see patents become a thing and litigation and defense of patents and, and so forth. And so I'm curious, when you look at the industrial revolution, both in the UK and the US, What's kind of the report card, to use a grade school metaphor, what's the report card that you'd give the patent system, and how do you think that those systems enabled or prevented just the flourishing of invention that happened in that time period? Well, the British industrialized under a much less well-developed patent system, this registration system. People got some protection for their ideas. But there are a number of things to say about the British patent system um, besides that it was a registration system. It was very expensive. So until the mid-19th century, I think it was about four times per capita income, uh, the cost to just apply for a patent. Well, you got it if you applied for it. But it was about four times per capita income to apply for a patent. That cost had to have excluded a lot of people from ever even applying. Exactly, yeah. And as a result, if you look at who got patents in Britain, 
compared to who got patents in the U.S., you see that the people who got patents were much wealthier, had higher status occupations, had had more elite backgrounds. So Serena Khan, if people are interested in following up on that idea, she's the person who's done the most work on, on that. In the U.S., getting a patent was really cheap. So the first patent system was super cheap. It was less than $5 to, to get a patent under that 1790 law. And when they revised the law, they wanted to stem the flow a little bit. So they raised the cost to $30 a patent. And that's what it stayed for a long, 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 long period of time throughout the 19th century. So that meant, well, in the early 19th century, that meant the cost of a patent was about a month's wages of a skilled worker in the early 19th century. So that's a lot of money, but it still put patents within range of many ordinary people. So the big difference between the way the British industrialized and the way we did is that our system harnessed the creativity of a huge segment of the population relative to Britain, goes much further down in the social hierarchy. And in fact, when Kenneth Sokoloff and Zarina Khan studied great inventors, they found that many of the great inventors of the 19th century U.S. did not even have a formal primary school education. Wow. I mean, of course, they were literate in a self-taught way, but they didn't have much in the way of formal schooling. I guess I'd never connected those dots. But when, when you say that, when you hear about the inventors in the U.K., they tend to have been Lord such and such. And I guess yeah. that was primarily because you had to be wealthy to apply for the patent. Is that fair, you think? Yeah. And so one, one of the things you see, for example, is that workers in factories, they may have ideas, but they rarely generate patents in, in the UK where they do in the US. There's plenty of patents that are, are developed by workers working for companies, and then the workers can quit. In the 19th century, it was very easy for them to quit and found found companies or or sell their patents to a competitor company. There are a number of court cases where employers uh, contest employees that developed patents and sold them to competitors or started their own businesses. And the courts say, it's really interesting, gives you some insight into the way people thought about things in the 19th century. The courts say, well, you hired a person, you got their body, but you didn't get their mind. And so the products of their mind are their own. And if the company contributed resources, that is, if the worker developed some of these ideas using company facilities or company resources, then the company would get what was called a shop right, a license to use the patent. But the ownership of the patent still belonged to the employee, and the employee could exploit it however he or, in rare cases, she wanted, including selling it to a competitor. And that made employers treat uh, creative employees better than would otherwise have been the case. You mentioned earlier that patents tend to be pro-cyclical, meaning they, they follow the, the whims of the economy over time. But looking to slightly more modern day, when you look at the USPTO's issued patents over time, utility patents in particular really started to spike in the middle late 1800s. 
But then when you look in the late 1900s, in, in recent memory for many of us, it was an absolute explosion. I mean, it, it dwarfed that of the 1800s. What has really driven that massive increase over time in the number of patents being issued by the USPTO? Okay, first, a caution. So a number doesn't mean anything except mm. in comparison to another n- number. And we have to think about what the right numbers to compare it to. So if you compare patents to population, well, that might be a, a good number to compare right. them to, right? Because the population gives you the number of potential inventors, uh, at least. So relative to population, you'll still see the same pattern, but it's much less pronounced. So there's a surge in the in patents per capita after 1850, you know, peaking in like the 1880s around there. And it's a pretty high in level after that. It actually falls in the period of the Great Depression the Second World War, and actually during the period associated, most associated with large firm R&D labs. And in the late 20th century, it takes off again. But a good part of the surge relative to population comes from foreign inventors take out patents in the U.S. So if you look at total patents relative to patents granted to U.S. residents, Those lines are really close until the late 19th century. So part of what's generating the surge in patents in the late 20th century is um, globalization. And not just globalization in the sense of trade like we had in the late 19th century, but the rise of other economies that are generating important technologies and whose inventors are then also patenting in the U.S. So then if you think about what the denominator should be, in terms of the population at risk of invention, you know, it's much, much bigger. And so, you know, with appropriate population deflators, I, I don't know if there's any rise. That's interesting. So globalization really sparked a huge, I don't know if this is the right term, but domestication of international patents or inventions into right. the United States to sell into this market. Right. And also U.S. inventors, you know, mm-hmm. also patent in Europe and Britain in Japan especially. But to your point, a much greater population base, much greater to spread those patents over. Yeah. Now, another possible comparison would be to look at patents relative to GDP. So if you look at patents just relative, and it's hard to know if that might be a silly comparison, but it it is at least informative in the sense that tells you when you use different comparisons, you get very different results. So if you look at patents, the number of patents relative to real GDP of the United States. The peak is about 1875. And right now, the number of patents relative to the size of the economy is back where it was in the early 19th century. Wow. So we've become less inventive compared to our GDP. Well, I'm not sure that's a meaningful number, but But I just want to emphasize that if you just look at the raw number of patents, you may be looking at the wrong thing. You know, and I wonder if you ascribe that in some sense to the financialization of the economy and financial innovations, correct me if I'm wrong, you're generally not protecting those with a patent. It's it's more of a trade secret, perhaps, or an execution thing where you just have to move quickly on some new financial product. But a huge portion of the economy is now financialized, and then that doesn't really require patent protection quite so much. 
There is patent protection for really? for business model, you know, for the some of these things. In fact, that's one, you know, it's a controversial area of patent protection, like software, you know, is a controversial right. area of patent protection. But yeah, yeah, business kind of models, business practices can be patented now. But I don't know how important they are in relative numbers. One of the, the topics I was really curious to dig in on a little bit was this idea that a patent grants the inventor the right to exclude others from using it. But the person, the inventor, has to enforce the patent. And so I, I read somewhere that the patent doesn't give you the right to commercialize it or anything. It just allows you to prevent others from using your invention. So practically speaking, what does that mean? I, I can prevent others from using it. But what does that mean on a day-to-day -day basis? Well, when you have a patent, you can certainly exploit your technology in your own business, or you can sell it or license to someone else who would do it for you. But in order to prevent competitors from using your idea, you have to enforce it, which is much more costly than a patent itself. And does enforce it really, is that code for file lawsuit, essentially? Yeah, like you, you would have to have some way of finding out that someone else was using your patent and then you would send them a notice and say, hey, uh, you know, I have a patent on that. You can't use that. And then if they continue to use it, yeah, you'd have to file a lawsuit. Now, historically, there's, at least in the 19th century, which I know a lot more about, there were honor codes about these kinds of things. So, uh, for example, I know of one case of a guy who went into partnership with uh, someone who he thought had invented a particular machine tool. And later he found that actually the guy had copied the machine tool that was invented by people at Brown and Sharp, which was a big machine tool firm. So what he did is he wrote Brown and Sharp and he said, I just discovered we've been infringing on you and we're really sorry. We will gladly recompense, pay you for our error and please forgive us. <laughs> <laughs> it's a kinder, gentler time. Yeah, I think probably there's a lot of that still. I think we overemphasize the stuff that ends up in court and don't see all the things that are going on be behind the scenes. In the 19th century, it was just common for mechanics, as they called themselves, to visit other people's shops, see what was going on there, trade ideas. And they had an ethic of respecting each other's intellectual primacy. And I think, you know, probably our world is like this. Like, for example, I'm an academic. I read scholarship by lots of other scholars while, before it's published, while it's still a working paper. We all believe that our ideas will not be stolen by another academic. And, you know, there are occasional cases of academic dishonesty, but really they're small relative to the amount of sharing that goes on. And so I think, you know, the world of intellectual property is very similar. People mostly, you know, recognize other people's primacy if they know about it. And litigation is an important part of the system. It's the stick that makes it all work, but there's a lot of cooperation and a lot of honesty going on under the surface. Do you think that one accusation you might level at the patent system is that defending a patent is expensive, particularly if you have to go to court? 
my impression now, and this isn't based on data, it's just my impression that is that you, you tend to see a lot of innovation coming out of companies. You know, Apple releases something new, Google releases something new, companies innovate. And that seems to be the sense today as opposed to people innovating, like you might have seen back in the Industrial Revolution. But do you think that this high defense cost burden contributes to some of this shift towards corporations over time as opposed to individual inventors? So I think there are many more individual inventors today than you would think. And I think a lot of the hostility to patents that you hear from big companies really comes from not wanting to have to pay uh, the costs of buying intellectual property from the many small inventors that are, that are out there. But I usually think of you know the 19th century as a, a, an era when there's lots of individual inventors. And you get the rise of large firm R&D in the early 20th century. There's a coexistence between firms and these small, small people, some small companies sometimes. And then it's really only in the period, I would say from the late 40s through the 1960s, really, that invention is so dominated by large enterprises. And I think that this was a completely unnatural period, um, that this is a period when the federal government was essentially funding private R&D. Basically, private company R&D was basically a at its peak, about two-thirds of it came from the federal government in the mid-60s or the early 60s. And it was only large firms who got those research dollars. You know, the government didn't want to get in the business of trying to figure out who of these little people was worth funding. And so they went to Bell Labs and they went to GE and, and they funded their enterprises but these large firms responded by building these huge R&D facilities. Bell Labs hired Aero Saarinen to build this huge campus in New Jersey, right? Those are your tax dollars at work. And then when the government cut back on R&D spending at the peak of the Vietnam War and, and you know, it continued to fall after that, large firms cut back their R&D budgets. And uh, they increasingly bought more technology from outside firms, from small firms, from small inventors. And they were a growing share of invention in the late 20th century. And it's really that world that a lot of the complaints about the patent system come from large firms who don't like to operate in a world where they have to pay somebody else for ideas. That's a great segue into this last section of, of our conversation. I was really curious to, to bring this home into our reality today and, and just get some of your thoughts on with the work you've done historically on, on patents, how do you really think that, that they function? How do you think they interact with our world today? And one of the big ones is this common criticism you hear. And, and I, I've learned a lot today about large companies. You're right. Large companies love to pound the table and say, this patent system is terrible. And I bet you're right. You follow the money and they don't like paying for inventions. But a common criticism is patents prevent innovation. Commonly, the retort to that is that, well, without protections, companies and people would never invest into innovation. So you, you need some sort of legal protection for it. And I'm curious, the answer I'm sure lies between those two extremes somewhere, but you are far right of the bell curve in terms of your understanding of the history of the patent system. Where's your read on where that answer lies? Are patents evil? Are they great? Or is the answer somewhere in the middle? So patents are all of the above, right? 
<laughs> so I think this is a point that Steve Haber and I drove home in the introduction to our book, uh, The Battle Over Patents. The patent system always generates complaints. And it always generates complaints because there are profits to be earned from innovation and different groups of people have claims on those profits. So uh, inventors want to get as much as they can of the surplus that their ideas generate. And the firms that produce products for people's consumption want to get as much as possible. And this is a battle that goes on. And patents are an important part of that fight. So everyone's always going to be angry. <laughs> and it's been true for the whole history of the patent system. So we open our introduction with, uh, with some complaints about the patent system. Which, re which could have been written today. You know, too many patents generated for low-value things, interfering with innovation, blah, blah, blah. We open our book with that. It's someone, something that a railroad executive said in the late 19th century in testimony. <laughs> the more things change, the more they stay the same. Yeah, it's always there, right? So, okay, so this is part of the patent system that there, there are going to be these complaints. It's a human institution People push on it for advantage and they get what they can. Sometimes they push too far one way. Sometimes they push on the institutions too far the other way. And so we constantly have an adjustment in the institution over time. So patents are imperfect. They're costly. There's some waste associated with them. But what are the alternatives? So, you know, people talk about alternatives. They talk about secrecy. Well, we already talked a little bit about some of the problems of, of secrecy in particular. It's, it's much more cumbersome for inventors to benefit from that productive division of labor and allow them to specialize in invention. What else? People today tout other things like prizes, innovation prizes, there's a problem, though. You can only offer a prize for something that you know you want. Sometimes that's a useful thing. If you know you have to solve a problem, offering a prize for that might be a useful way to generate solutions. But the beauty of the patent system is that millions of people sort of in their own kind of heads come up with ideas. No one's telling them what direction for search they pursue. They just follow their inclinations, and all kinds of surprising things are discovered. So uh, it's hard to imagine that with a prize system. And the other thing about prizes is they have lots of imperfections too. You know, as Zarina Khan has shown in her work, um, people tend to be unduly influenced by who is submitting applications for prizes, and they look for people who are like themselves, who are elite often. Right, who are well-educated, who have the social background that you think an innovator should have. That reminds me somewhat of that, I think it was Churchill's line, something like it, democracy is a terrible form of government, but uh, you know, it's, it's, it's until you've tried all the other ones or something like, to that extent. Yeah, I, I think the patent system is exact. You could just substitute patent system in that quotation. <laughs> Of late, I've read in the, the media quite often, you, you see stories about so-called patent trolls, these companies that aren't really operating to do anything other than just sue other companies and, and extract some sort of value for this portfolio of patents that they have. How do you think of, of what a patent troll is? And 
do you think that's kind of a a bug or a feature of the system, if that makes sense? So patent trolls have appeared from time to time over the course of U.S. history, and they're usually benefiting from something that's not quite right with the patent system, and they tend to disappear when whatever is not quite right gets gets corrected. So, for example, in the late 19th century, there were these people that were called sharks. That was the 19th century word for trolls, and they asserted patents in ways that seemed very shady, but they didn't really last. There's a blip of them and they go away. And I think that's probably true with the so-called trolls today. Trolls, just to define them, they're, they're entities that don't engage in production, but buy up patents and assert them against potential infringers. You know, I I think that they've already been disappearing. They were mainly operating in software and recent court decisions that made software patents less valuable or less defendable have already cut back on um, people, uh, on portfolios of patents that for the purposes of assertion. But I would just remind your listeners that sometimes there are legitimate reasons or sometimes they serve kind of Robin Hood kind of functions. So I talked to a man who had a a patent for a a business method and he had a small business where he used his own ideas and sold business management services. I don't remember what the patent was for to different companies. And he was at a company one day and the head of the company said, oh, we're not going to need your services anymore. And so he said, oh, okay, could you explain why? And he says, oh, we're just going to do this ourselves. We don't, we don't need you. And he says, well, you can't. I have a patent for this. And they said, so sue us. And what they were, um, <laughs> what they were benefiting from was the inequality or an ability to pay for legal services that disadvantages small inventors. And so this person I was talking to said, well, the next day, um, he might have been exaggerating about the next day, but he said what he did is he sold his patent to Intellectual Ventures, which was is one of the so-called trolls. And he said that Intellectual Ventures had not only enforced his patent for him, but actually developed the patent further so it, so it became uh, multiple patents. So he actually, as a small inventor, benefited from selling his invention to this famous troll in a circumstance where he would not have been able to profit from his ideas because he was legally outgunned. I take your point. And and Intellectual Ventures, I'm sure, would have been criticized in the media by whatever the company was. But he was offloading the litigation risk and that expense to a company that had the core competency in those things. And, and that makes a lot of sense. They're, they're specializing in something that, that he wasn't. Yeah, so they were asserting patents on behalf of people who couldn't do that. And they got a very bad reputation for, for doing that. And they may have, in fact, overstepped. I, don't, I wouldn't pretend to know. But I wouldn't listen to the complaints and just believe them. I think these are complex issues where... There's some market failure that intellectual ventures sees as an opportunity. So what's the the hot take from Naomi here from the, the birth of our modern patent system in the U.S. in the 1830s? 
Do you think on balance, our patent system really enables or prevents innovation and why? Oh, it enables innovation. It gives people the, I think the best thing about the patent system, well, if you can enforce your patent, it prevents free writing, but it also uh, just does this incredible job of allowing for a productive division of labor. And I think that's the most important thing. That division of labor can occur within a firm. You know, so under our system, inventors were always individuals, but companies could hire creative individuals and then the companies took charge of developing the work or it could occur in the market. And I think we underestimate the extent to which market trade and patents is a really important source of technological development of the United States. Like take Thomas Edison, who is the most famous inventor of all. I mean, mostly he operated as an independent inventor and he got companies who really valued his intellectual property to contribute resources to setting him up with his own shop, for example, at Menlo Park, New Jersey. When he did get into companies, it was a disaster. GE is not called Edison General Electric because he infuriated (laughs) J.P. Morgan that J.P. Morgan just froze him out of the GE merger. And instead, the main company that runs that merger is Thompson-Houston Electric Company. That's the core enterprise in the merger. But, you know, Edison waged a proxy fight against J.P. Morgan. He sued the directors of his phonographic company and wanted them to, you know, he just got into fights all the time within these companies. You know, that's not the best world. (laughs) Edison was much more productive inventor when he was not inside a company, when he was able to just work in a shop and sell off inventions to companies that would develop them and commercialize them. To your point, the, the division of labor. He was a great inventor and a suspect business person, perhaps, we, we might say. Yes, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Not perhaps. I think I agree with you. That I, I've learned a lot about that division of labor. That, that I've never thought about that before as an important feature of the patent system. But imagine that I'm, I'm on the total and other end of the spectrum, and I disagree with you. And I say something like, well, but wait a second, you you can make a lot of money if you come up with a good invention. Why do you need to protect it? Because the person that really executes on commercializing that, they should get the reward for that because they've really brought value to society. How do you respond to that? I think that value comes from many contributions. And so people will, you'll see people saying things like, this patent was responsible for this incredible fortune. But really, a patent gives the right to exclude others from a technology. It requires a lot of other talents to develop an idea into a profitable, important business. And all of those elements are are necessary, but they will always be fighting over the rewards from those inventions. And you need some way of allocating those resources. So the patent system is a starting point in creating a system that allows the people who generate technological ideas to get a reasonable share of the rewards from, from their ideas. But it's impossible a priori to say 
you know, that 99% of the value in this business came from X and 1% came from Y. We don't really know. There's no way to do this. This is a bargaining problem. And patents are important bargaining chips that go into those contests along with other things. The owners of capital have plenty of bargaining chips too, right? (laughs) They say, you know, we aren't going to uh, finance this business unless you promise us this share of revenue stream, right? There are lots of bargaining chips, on, but I'm, I'm not so sure the little guys who come up with ideas would have any bargaining chips if it <laughs> weren't for the patent system that gives them the right to exclude people from developing their ideas without their permission. Final question, Naomi, and I, I always like to ask my guests this just to bring it home, but what lesson or lessons do you think you've learned from your study of patents that you think can be applied to today's world? So there are a number of important lessons. The most important is you just can't listen to belly aching and make policy on the basis of who yells and screams and complains <laughs> the loudest. You really have to dig in and think about how things work, what work the different elements of the economic system, including the patent system, are doing in generating value. And then you make policy based on that. The other thing I would just emphasize is, you know, the problem of numbers uh, and historical perspective. So um, people complain a lot about the extent of litigation in the present. Again, we don't know really what, whether, whether it's certainly gone up, but whether it's high. It certainly bothers, you know, certain people who are involved in litigation and they'll complain a lot. But is it a large amount of litigation? Well, Chris Beecham, who's a law professor at Brooklyn College, actually went back and spent a tremendous amount of time going back through two federal district courts in the 19th century, turning the documents page by page, because that was the only way to get it to to calculate the amount of litigation. And he found from those two district courts, just two out of the whole country, there was more litigation relative to the whole amount of patents enforced in the whole nation than there is today from all courts relative to the number of patents enforced. So again, you know, like we're screaming, and but it doesn't look so bad if you look at litigation and historical perspective. There are other periods when it was clearly a lot worse. Then the third point then is if you look at the pattern of technical change, if you look at the growth of the economy, the periods when the economy has been most dynamic in terms of economic growth, in terms of technological change, have been the periods when there's this tremendous growth of patents and there's also a tremendous growth of litigation. And, you know, it may be that, you know, these things just go together. You have a lot of technological change, you have a lot of fighting, you have a lot of litigation, but that's the price of a dynamic competitive economy. And if you choke that off, you may choke off economic dynamism. Fascinating. Well, Naomi Lamoureux, thank you so much for the time. Again, if you want to find out more about Naomi and her work, visit Naomi-Lamoureux, that's L-A-M-O-R-E-A-U-X dot Squarespace dot com. Thank you so much for the time today. Really enjoyed the conversation. Oh, thank you, Alex. It was fun. 
a pleasure talking to you. This has been a production of Riches and Power, hosted by Alex Dubay, edited by Sean Dooley. Copyright 2022 by Wesley Capital, LLC.